0: Thank you, Ashlyn. Good morning, Crossroads. Good morning. Boy, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I'm excited whenever we're able to gather and uh, declare the praises of him who has given us life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for the opportunity, God, that you've given us to come together as your church. God, to uh, open up your word and to hear from you this morning. God, to be challenged, be encouraged, uh, be motivated, God, to live out the calling that you've placed on each of our lives. And God, I just, uh, I ask that your Holy Spirit just work and move and and just uh, be free in our hearts and minds this morning to show us what you have for us, God, to convince us of your truth so that we might live it out. And God, we give you the glory and the praise this morning in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So you guys need to pray for me. I'm a father of a a teenage household. How many of you guys have been there at one time or another? Yeah? You know how I'm feeling, right? So one of the things that happens each and every uh, week, it feels like, is I have a very social daughter. She's uh, 14 years old. I won't name her. I don't want to embarrass her, Um, but she's very social. I don't know where she gets it from. Uh, I don't know why she's so excited to be around people and that kind of thing. I, I mean, my wife and I are very shy people, so I don't know where that comes from. But my daughter is always asking me, Father, what must I do to have a sleepover tonight? <laughs> and so I say, well, you know the commands to clean your room, to do your chores, do the dishes, and to honor your mother and father. And she goes, well, all I've, I've done all that since this morning. And I say, one thing you lack you haven't treated your 10-year-old brother with the type of respect and dignity, invited him in to the party that you're planning. And she looks at me with these eyes of, like, disdain. And she says, just can't do that. And she walks away sad. (laughs) That's a silly illustration, but it is somewhat true, right? There's always an area of our life that we don't like to have pointed out. Amen? Some area in our life where we know we have some skeletons in the closet, so to speak. We have some areas that we just don't want to ex- expose. We don't want to be confronted with those things that we're still holding back from truly surrendering all to God. And all of us have those things in our lives. All of us have an area of our life where, man, we just don't want the spotlight being shine. I think if you think about it, you know at least one area in your own life where that's true. And in our story this morning in the, in the Gospel of Luke, we're picking up the story, we're bringing Jesus into focus here in 2020, and we're in Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 18. Ashlyn read this section for us this morning, but I want to read it again just to remind us. Verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me Good. Jesus asked him, No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The number one principle that we need to understand this morning is in order for us to understand the price of salvation. This morning I titled my message, The Price of Salvation. The price of salvation, the price of our salvation, starts with us being honest before God. It starts with us admitting our shortcomings, confessing our sin, and expressing our need for a savior. For someone to come into our life, to clean it up, to change us from the inside out, we can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. You know, in the, in the days of the rabbis, Jesus was considered a rabbi. In the days of the rabbis, um, they were very careful not to refer to the rabbis as anything more than just simply rabbi or teacher. But yet this a rich young ruler comes before Jesus and calls him Good. And the Bible kind of emphasizes the fact that Jesus picks up on that and says, wait a second, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. The psalmist back in in Psalms would refer to the fact of God is good. His goodness endures forever. And so there's this recognition, maybe even a recognition on the part of this, this man, this ruler, that there's something special about Jesus. He's not your average or ordinary rabbi. And that's probably what has led him to Jesus. And so there's this recognition that, Jesus, I see that you're good. And Jesus says, are you sure that you see me as good? Because do you understand what you're saying? You're saying I'm, I'm equivalent with God. And Jesus knew that that was true, but he was questioning whether or not it was truly true in this man's heart. I think this man was being dishonest about a few areas of his his life. Number one, he was being dishonest about his view of Christ. Because although he called him good, when Jesus gave him something to do, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus finally gets to the point and says, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come and follow me. The man wasn't willing to respond. If he truly thought that Jesus was God, that Jesus was good, that everything that came out of the mouth of Jesus was the right instructions to follow, then why wasn't this man willing? Because I don't really believe that this man thought that Jesus was God, that he had that kind of authority, the kind of authority to change this man's life. And many times we kind of we have ideas about what we think about Jesus. He's a good guy. Seems like he had a lot of good things to say. But when it comes to ruling my life, when it comes to running my life, calling the shots, I'll give Jesus some leeway. But if he gets too deep, if he, if he calls me to do something a little too hard, that's where I need to draw the line. Because ultimately, we want to still be in charge of our life. We're not willing to fully surrender the keys of our life over to Jesus. That was this man's condition. He had a superficial view, secondly, of his own sin. Think about it. He said, all of these things I have done since my childhood. I want you to think about the things that were in this list. Do not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Now, I want you to think about how difficult that standard truly is how much our mind can roam, how much our, our appetites of our heart can seek things that we know are off limits. We all struggle with that if we're, if we're truly honest, if we're willing to have a mirror held up to our lives and realize like, wow, yeah, I have that blemish. But this man, he was blind to his own sin. Do not murder. It says if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. I've struggled with that. I've had hatred in my heart. I've wanted people to get what's coming to them. How many struggle with that sometime? You know, you see what's happening in our world around, and you're like, I just hope they get what's coming to them. Bunch of scumbags, dirt bags, whatever. We start getting frustrated. We start, we start kind of allowing our anger to rise to the level where we don't view people the way Jesus wants us to view them. Do not steal. Man. I knew some people that every restaurant they go to, they take some of the, some of the things with them, right? Like, I, I paid for this. I, I gave a tip. So therefore, I'm, it's, it's my right or a hotel room or whatever, right? Little things sometimes. But we, we ignore that or we justify those little things. Like, that wasn't really stealing. You know, I deserve that. I was quite the patriot. We can justify our sins if we're not careful. This man... Yeah, I'm sure he had good intentions. There's no doubt in my mind that this man was trying to live up to the law. But he's also not being very honest about his shortcomings. Do not bear false witness. Do not lie. Man, I, it's very tough to go through your whole life without lying. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I stole a cookie from my, the little cookie jar that was in my mom's kitchen. And I was like seven years old, so I went in there, and I saw the cookies, and I knew that it was past my bedtime, but I didn't care because that cookie was calling my name. And I went in there, I stole it. My mom was like right there watching me, right? But I didn't see her, and so I turned around, and I have half the cookies hanging out of my mouth, and she's all, did you take a cookie? And I'm like, no. You know, we do that with an almighty God in our lives. Think about it. You know, God sees all. We can't hide There's nothing hidden from his sight. And yet many times we find ourselves trying to justify before God that that we're not really guilty of that sin. Honor your father and mother. You know, it's interesting here. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, from the law, from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. He quotes five of them here. And it's interesting because he doesn't quote the the commandments that deal with uh, do not have idols, do not create idols, do not... um, you know, use the the name of the Lord uh, in vain. Uh, He doesn't talk about the Sabbath here. He doesn't talk about those first four commandments that deal with our relationship between God. He really focuses on the second six commandments that deal with our relationships with others and with things in our lives. And he quotes, do not commit adultery, that's the number seven commandment. Do not murder, number six. Do not steal, number eight. Do not uh, bear false witness is number nine in the list if you read it in your Bible. And honor your father and mother, that's number five. So it just shows you there that Jesus, being perfect, quotes them out of order. So if you quote a verse and you get a few of the things mixed up, don't let anybody accuse you that you're not doing it right. Because Jesus didn't even do it right, but he, obviously he knew what he was saying and what he's saying is true. But he, he leaves out one commandment in that list. You know, he quotes five, six, seven, eight, nine. Last time I checked, there were how many commandments? Ten. Jesus purposely omits number ten. Why? Why would he do that? Well, I think about how many times as human beings, we can read between the lines. Can we not? You know, I've complimented my wife before. I said, man, your your hair is so lovely. I love, you know, the way your, your hair just looks so nice. You don't like my outfit, do you? I mean, I didn't say anything about your outfit. I'm just focusing on the beauty of your your hair and the way your your face is shining. You hate my clothes. Oh, I'll go change. And it's like, I didn't say anything about that, right? But there's this thing where, as humans, we can kind of read between the lines. We have the ability to discern, like, wait a second, why didn't Jesus list commandment number 10? Maybe I have a problem with commandment number 10. But this man doesn't react that way, does he? He reacts after Jesus lists five through nine as like, I'm good with all of those. Now, Jesus knew that those were probably areas where he was doing better than most. He still wasn't perfect. The Bible tells us that you cannot achieve righteousness with God through observing the law. You cannot earn your way to heaven. Otherwise, why was it necessary to send Jesus to a cross? If it was possible for you and I to be right with God, to live up to the perfect holy standard of a righteous holy God by our actions of just observing law, then Jesus' death and mutilation on a cross would be just, it'd be ridiculous by God. It would be unnecessary. He would just hold us to the standard of the law. But the law was not given so that we might attain righteousness with God. The law was given so that we might see our need. The law was given so that we could see that I broke that commandment. Uh Uh-oh, I've lied, I've cheated, I've had anger in my heart, I've murdered, I've committed adultery. Uh Uh-oh, I've given other things, honor and worship over God. I'm an idolater. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble with God. I fall short of God's perfect standard. What in the world could ever help me get to God and have that relationship renewed? that was once lost in the Garden of Eden. What can ever bridge the gap between me, a sinner, and the filthy rags I bring before God, and the perfect holiness of God? I can't be in his presence. Woe is me. That is what the law was intended to do, but you don't see it happen in this man's example because he's not being honest. He's not willing to be honest. The law is designed to be a mirror. To reveal your sins. Read Romans chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. Galatians 2 21 talks about these principles of the law. But the young man looked into this mirror and didn't see the stains and the blemishes in his life. It's interesting that Jesus leaves out the last commandment. Anybody know the last commandment by chance? Any, any law experts in the room? Any Pharisees here? Nobody wants to raise their hand when I say any Pharisees here, right? Anybody know the 10th commandment? Do not covet. We have one Pharisee in the room. I'm just kidding. It's Nate, the law expert. Thou shalt not covet. Interesting that Jesus leaves that out with a rich man. Is it not? Because this man had built his whole life around the idea of having stuff and having a lot of stuff and being very satisfied in his stuff. As a matter of fact, if somebody else bought some stuff, he wanted that stuff too. Because he's got to live, keep up with the Joneses. He's got, he's got a reputation to keep. He's got a life to sort of present in front of others as like blessed, look at me. But Jesus looked through all of that facade and he saw the depravity of this man's heart. And he realized that that's the thing. That's the hang up, buddy. That's the one thing keeping you from following me, giving me full control of your life and your heart. Your covetous attitude that is deep down in your heart. So I'm going to challenge you with something. This is Remember, Jesus is God. God is challenging this man through the person and the work of Jesus Christ in this moment. Jesus looks at this man, and he didn't look at him with like, man, I hope he just walks away sad. Because we know God's heart, right? God doesn't want anyone to perish. But everyone come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart for us. That's God's heart for this world. But he's not going to mess around when it comes to truth. He's going to give it to you straight. And that's what Jesus does with this man. He says, one thing you lack. Only Jesus could see this in this man's heart. And this isn't the thing that everybody lacks. Jesus isn't calling everyone to go sell all their stuff. No, but he is calling all of us to find that area that we're withholding, that area that is kind of our closet that we don't want the door open to. He's calling us to open that closet and get it cleaned out by him, to make sure that we're being honest before God, saying, God, you have full reign of my house, my heart, my life. He doesn't want us to hold anything back. So this man, being confronted with this, go and sell all things that you own, everything you have, and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You will have eternal life. You will have all that you're looking for. You've come to me saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You seem to be wanting what I have to give. So let me give it to you straight. This is what you need to do. And this man, it says, verse 23, after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Think about that. He held the riches, the temporal riches this life gives you. And I want you guys to think about this, all right? Even if you obtain a lot of wealth in this life, how long do you get to keep it for? Until you die, right? I mean, there's men who have wanted their, their cash buried with them in their coffin. That's ridiculous, right? The, the, the Egyptians had massive, massive graves known as pyramids built, right? So with the idea that they, you know, would have their, all their important things buried with them, that they were just hoping that one day they'd just be resurrected into this eternal existence, and they would get to enjoy all that stuff again. But it's all a lie. It's all facade. Because the things that, are, that we consider valuable on earth are pavement in heaven. They're asphalt in heaven. Gold is ridiculous in heaven. And yet we cherish it here on earth. This little ring that's around my finger represents 22 years of commitment to my wife in marriage. Yeah, you can clap for that. You're allowed. And I cherish this. You know, one time I lost it. It was in my, I, I was playing basketball and I put it in my shoe, like to protect it, right? And it was lost for like nine months in my shoe because I, that was like the last basketball game and I put it in my basketball shoes when I switched out my shoes and I put it in my, tr- car, my trunk of my car and I thought, man, I had lost this ring. And this ring's very unique because this ring belonged to my great-grandfather. This was his ring when he got married and it's passed down by every oldest, potras. Um, my dad was the oldest potras. Marsha's here, my dad's sister. And then it got passed down to me, and I'm the oldest of my, of my family. And one day, likely, Micah gets this ring, and he'll be wearing it, unless he doesn't want it. <laughs> he rejects the temporal pleasures of this life. But gold is valuable to us, and we, we tre- treasure things like this on earth. And yet, this thing is not going to matter when we reach eternity. The things of this world, the things that we build our lives around, are temporal. They're great blessings that we can enjoy on earth. And they are to be used. We are stewards over the things that God blesses us with. But they are to be used for His kingdom, for His glory, for His purposes. And He's entrusted us with different things. Different gifts, different resources, different abilities. And the question is, are we, have we surrendered all of that over to him? And do we look at what he offers us in eternity as far greater? Or when he calls us to open that closet that's in our, our lives and to say, it's time to clean that out. Do we look at him and, and walk away sad? Because we're still holding on to what's in that closet. No, the principle number one is the price of our salvation is honesty before God. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Verse 24, seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? This was shocking for them. This statement that Jesus gives blew their minds. Because you got to remember the mindset of a Jewish person of that day. They believed that riches were the blessing of God. They believed that the more wealth you have, the more you were godly, the more blessed you were. That's how it worked. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons and Father Abraham had lots of wealth. He enjoyed the riches because God had poured blessing out into his life. And we know that Father Abraham had faith. It tells us in the Bible that he was a man of faith, that he's a hero of the faith. He's in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. So the people, they would see people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their forefathers, and and they would look up to these men. And they would say, that's the way we need to be. We need to be blessed by God to that level. We need to have that kind of wealth. And when they would look around in society, and those who had that wealth, they would go, clearly, they're right with God. Clearly, they're blessed by God. So when Jesus says, listen to this statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Last time I checked, the eye of a needle is like really, really tiny right? Maybe there's big needles. I don't know. I don't sew, so I don't know, but I don't think there's very big holes in those needles typically, right? And I know the size of a camel. You guys can all imagine. I mean, I don't, I've never ridden a camel. I, I've never had a camel with me, but I've seen pictures of camels, and I've seen them at the zoo, and I know that nothing in my mind can make that camel go through the eye of a needle. So what Jesus is saying, it's almost impossible for a rich person, to let go of the wealth that they have, to let go of, of pursuing that, and then turning all of their attention, their, their devotion over to me. It's almost impossible. Why? Well, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I thought they were blessed by God. The problem is, Jesus says it in a different passage, you can't serve two masters. You can't be pursuing wealth and pursuing my kingdom. Those are at odds with one another. You can have wealth as it's being dropped into your lap, into your life by my blessings, because I see that you're using it for my kingdom. I might entrust you with more. But you can't be pursuing that and then say, yeah, I still, yeah, I'm totally surrendered to Jesus. Yeah, I'm pursuing his kingdom. Jesus knows that's a lie. He knows that can't coexist. And he's calling this man out. He's saying, where are their true devotions of your heart? They lie in your wealth, in your riches, in your possessions. That's what you are hoping for. That's what you've placed all your trust in this life for. And I'm telling you, it's misplaced, it's misguided devotion. Turn your life over to me. But man, this was a shocking statement for, for people of that day. And they asked, they, weren't, they were very bold to Jesus, who in the world can be saved then? How is it possible that anybody could find salvation? We thought that you know, people that were rich were closer to God. And if you're saying it's, it's nearly impossible for them to be saved, we just don't get it. Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. He's not saying it's impossible for somebody who's wealthy to come to know him. It's possible, but he knows the challenge becomes greater the more obstacles that we have to let go of in our life, the more things that we have attached our lives to, built our lives upon, other foundations, sandy foundations that aren't the rock. When we've built our lives around all these other things, it's much more difficult for us to let go. That's why he says we have to have faith like a child. Do you remember that last last time we talked? That he's looking for childlike faith. What does a child do? A child doesn't worry about all that stuff. He's still in a mindset of like, I know my mommy and daddy love me, and I just want to be in their arms and in their care. That kind of childlike little tiny children who just are devoted to a relationship. That's the kind of thing he wants from us, from his followers. Verse 28, then Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. In other words, I'm an amazing example. Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth, is he not? We've left it all, Jesus. I was a fisherman, remember that? I had this awesome boat, and like you called me to leave it, and I I did. I left. I've been following you around this countryside. All of us have left stuff. So what do we get? He said to them, I assure you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Now, I want to I be clear here. He's not calling you to leave your wife or your children or your mother or your father. He's just saying that there are people, there are missionaries, right, who have gone into far jungle regions. They've had to leave their wife behind because it's not safe for them to travel. And they've been killed in those moments. Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, you remember them? There are devotion where Jim Elliott said, it is so important that those people, those vicious, cannibalistic, tribalistic people that are without God, that they hear the message of Jesus Christ, that I'm willing to leave my wife behind. Because my wife is a temporal blessing from God. But what is more important is my devotion to see God use my life to show others and point them to Jesus. He says that kind of commitment, that kind of sacrifice will be rewarded. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is very clear. I assure you, they will will receive many times more in the age to come. But then in the same breath, look at verse 31. Then he took the 12 aside and told them, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. So he pulls, you know, he's probably talking to a crowd at that point. The crowd asks him, like, who in the world could be saved? Peter speaks up. Look, I've left everything. We've left everything to follow you. But Jesus pulls his 12 disciples aside in that next breath, and he says this. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. He wants to always let his disciples know where he's headed. He's headed for the cross. Why? Because he's the Savior. He's come to seek and save those who were lost. His mission was not to rule and reign on earth in that coming. His mission was to give his life a ransom for many. And he's devoted to accomplishing his mission. Look at the very next verse. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Their minds just couldn't comprehend, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? I don't get it. I thought you were our Messiah. You're here to come and reign and rescue us. We're gonna be with you. This is awesome. We found our king, the king sent from God, the Messiah, the Messiah they had their own preconceived notion of what that might look like. And they were committed to that notion rather than the truth of what was revealed in scripture and what Jesus knew. And that was he was headed to Jerusalem. He was headed to a fate of having to, to bear the, the weight of our sins on his body on a cross. I want you to think of that. Think about your own sins. Think about your own darkness. Think about the things that you hope would never be brought to light, that nobody knows about you, that you know about yourself. Just those those sins that are hidden still from most other people. Think of the darkness of those moments. Jesus put that on himself. He bore in his own body on a cross all of our sins, the sins of the whole world. Think about that what that cost him. Think about what that moment meant for him to be committed to that. He said there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He considers us friends. He considers us his friends. He considers everyone in this world a friend because he laid down his life. Are you going to reject that kind of offer? Are you going to reject that kind of friendship? I pray that you don't. Jesus loves you. But they understood none of these things. The second thing that I want you to understand about the price of salvation is God's price of salvation was his only son, Jesus. His death covered all of our sins, and his resurrection defeated death forever. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your victory? There is no victory in death anymore. Satan thought that, you know, when he got, when he tempted Eve in the garden and Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit, Jesus told them in the garden, you will surely die. There will be death. There will be separation that will occur between me, your creator, and you, the created. I can't have relationship with darkness, with evil. It's going to be separated. Further, you're going to literally die. I am the life-giving spirit, and you're separating yourself from that. There's going to be a death. That death will continue into eternity. That separation will be forever. Don't eat of the forbidden fruit. And Satan got him to think, you won't surely die. God's just not wanting you to be like him. Eat the fruit, and then your eyes will be open, and you'll be awesome. And they gave in. And we've been given into to the lie ever since. If you sinned here today, you've given in to a lie. The lie was, go ahead and do that. It's going to make your life better. It's going to feel good. It's going to make you happy. Go ahead. Do it. Satan continues to tempt. He continues to draw people away from God. It says that he's very successful because not one person on this earth goes through life without sinning without giving in, without suffering the same fate of separation between God and us. They understood none of what he was doing. The question becomes, how could Peter be thinking about personal gain when his own Lord and Savior was going to Jerusalem to be crucified? See, Jesus puts a check on him, does he not? He says, Peter, You're all excited about what you're going to get out of this relationship that I've offered you. And yes, it's true. You are going to be rewarded. Your faith will be rewarded. But I also want you to have a sober mind. Because I still have a a mission to accomplish. And you're going to have a mission to accomplish once I'm gone. I'm building my church. I'm leaving you behind. And at that moment, I'm sure he was shaking his head. Right? Like, did I pick the right guy? You know? And I think he's still shaking his head as I'm standing up here. Did I pick the right guy? But the truth is he wants to use each and every one of us. The truth is he loves us. He's calling us to a relationship with him. I love this principle that he was willing to pay that price because of his his great love for us, his great love for you and me. Will you accept his love? Will you reject his love? That's the real question of life. The Bible says that the garden was not the end. It says right there in the garden, God made a commitment. Right there in that moment, God said, I will crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to overcome this curse of sin and death. And it's going to cost me a lot. But I'm committed to it because of my love, my great love for this special possession, these people that I have created to have a relationship forever. He wants us forever. Think about what that looks like. He loves you and wants you to live with him forever. And he's provided the way. Will you embrace it this morning? Will you embrace it in your life? Verse 35, we're going to wrap up our passage here this morning. As he drew near Jericho. Now Jericho is 17 miles from Jerusalem. And you remember that Jericho was once destroyed. Do you remember Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? Right? I can't sing. But he was in... He, Jericho was completely leveled at one time. The old city was leveled. And then, if you read your Bible, you realize that somebody rebuilt the rubble. But it cost them both their sons' lives. Both their sons died because they rebuilt Jerusalem, you can, or Jericho. You can read about it in the Old Testament. But I think it's very interesting that Jericho, the old city, was built, but then King Herod, in order to appease the Jews, helped rebuild a new Jericho about a mile south of the old city. So here's Jesus. He's making his way to Jerusalem to fulfill his calling as a savior to give his life a ransom for many. And as he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now, Mark chapter 10, verse 46 tells us the name of this blind man. His name was Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. Now, what's interesting here, and the thing that I really like about it, is I want you to understand a few things. Number one, the the gospel of Luke was written to a man named Theophilus. It was part of a a two-volume work Luke and Acts that were provided to a man who was a government official in Rome, somebody important within the Roman Empire. And Luke had been with Paul. He had been traveling with Paul. He had seen Paul's devotion to Jesus Christ. He had seen Paul's life, and he's writing these words that he had researched and understood through talking with the disciples. There were still people in the church alive in Luke's day. Likely, Bartimaeus was one of them. A man who was once blind at the gates of Jericho and was now a leader in the church for Jesus and he could see. What a testimony. What a witness. What is Luke doing? He's writing real accounts down so that Theophilus would be convinced. So that, so that the world might be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. That he can heal the blind. And I think it's very interesting that he when he talks about the the death that he would incur. He talks about being subject to the Gentiles. He talks about being whipped and crucified and nailed to a cross. He talks about these specific things that were forecasted to happen in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 for one place. In many places in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 22 talks about Jesus being crucified, giving his life as a ransom. It was all told about and Luke writes this account, not just for us today to benefit from the principles that I'm trying to bring out of the text, but he, he tries to convince the reader, Theophilus, and anyone else who will read the Gospel of Luke, that this is real. This is real stuff. We're not talking about fairy tale town. We're not talking about things that don't exist. This is real stuff. This is weighty stuff. Verse 36, hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this meant. In other words, you're blind, you're helpless, you're just sitting by a gate. You're just hoping for a handout. That's how you live, that's your life, that's your existence. You're a blind beggar. There's no job for you. If you can't see in that day, it wasn't like they had like, you know, Braille that you could use to get a job. You were destitute. You were helpless. You just you just sat around hoping for some sort of decent thing to happen to you that day. So he inquired because he knows that there's a crowd passing by. He's like, what's going on? I hear all these people, all this commotion happening. This is kind of new. This hasn't happened near me in a while. Like, what's happening? And the, the people near him said, Jesus, the Nazarene, is passing by. They told him. Verse 38. So he called out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now that title, Son of David, that's a title that that was referred to the Messiah because they knew that the Messiah had to come in the line of David. It was prophesied. It was foretold. So the fact that he's calling Jesus, the Son of David, is a recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. This blind man who was likely uneducated, likely not somebody who was very scholarly, had enough faith to say, I've heard about Jesus. I've heard about this man, and I know that he fulfills the scriptures. He's the one. He's the one we're waiting for as a people, as the Jews. He's our Savior. I want him to be my Savior. I'm going to cry out for that Savior. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front of him told him to keep quiet. Shush, you're not worth it. Quiet down. You loser beggar, you're going to like cause commotion. This is a man that you shouldn't even be trying to distract from his mission. Just quiet down. But he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he drew near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? I was talking to Kurt in the office. He said, That's the craziest question in the Bible. What do you want me to do for you? Right? Here's a blind man. What do you think he wants? He wants to see, he wants to be healed, he wants to be rescued and delivered from his state of blindness. So he answers, Lord, he said, I want to see. Verse 42, receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Instantly, he could see. And he began to follow him, glorifying God. And I, want to, I really focus here because it's, it's such an interesting thing because the Bible has a lot of symbolism in it, does it not? Here's a symbolic story. You remember the man that was in the beginning of the story? He claimed to see. He claimed to be somebody who was elite of that culture. He claimed to know God and the things of God. And yet he was as blind as could be. He didn't see his own sin that was holding him back from a relationship with Jesus. Jesus had to point it out to him. And when it was pointed out, he got frustrated. He got sad. He walked away. And here's another man who's destitute, he has nothing to offer. He claims no special knowledge. He certainly doesn't have wealth and privilege. And here's a man who is literally blind, physically blind, and he can see clearly. He can spiritually see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the answer for his life, that he's worth placing his whole faith and trust in. You know, when the Bible says that your faith has healed you, it doesn't mean that there's some special power in your faith. No, it's the object of your faith. That's where the power lies. If some snake oil salesman would have walked down the street and he goes, I believe your faith healed no, your faith would have done nothing. It was the fact that he had placed his faith in God, in the person of Jesus Christ, that that faith, in that person with that power to heal and to save, that's what saved him. But yes, it took faith. It takes a step of faith. God says that without faith, it's impossible to please him, it's impossible to come to him, it's impossible to have our lives changed without faith. This man had faith, and that faith led to a changed life. Man, think about the transition. One moment he's begging, he's just sitting there helpless. The next moment he can fully see and he can celebrate and he can follow Jesus. And he walks and he joins the crowd on their way to Jerusalem. Principle number three, as I close, is this Are you letting anything come between you and God's salvation? You know, this man wasn't willing to be quiet, was he? He was told to shut up, he was told to stop pursuing. You're not worthy. Do you realize what an ugly condition you're in? You're unpresentable before this amazing rabbi that's coming through town. Quiet down. Go back to your wallowing in pity. This man would not be satisfied with that condition. This man recognized, yeah, I'm ugly. I haven't been able to see to comb my hair in many, many years. I'm a mess. But I recognize I'm a mess. And I need a Savior to clean up my mess. And so he cried out all the louder. Nothing would stop him from getting Jesus' attention. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be like this blind man. Nothing should stop you from getting to Jesus. You should cry out. And if somebody tells you, hey, man, you've been living an ugly life for many years, say, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's true. That's true but I don't care anymore. I recognize I'm in need of a savior. I'm in need of help. I'm in need of rescue. My sins condemn me. Yes, I recognize that, and I'm going to cry out to Jesus, and nothing's going to get in the way. This morning, I want to encourage you to cry out to Jesus. Don't let anything get in the way. Do you treasure what Jesus has above all else? And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, I want you to think about Are you treasuring what you have in Jesus above all else? or the things you're still holding on to, things you're still clinging to? You want a little bit of Jesus and you want a little bit of this world. There's going to come a moment of decision in our lives, a moment where Jesus is going to call us out. Are you ready to respond the right way? Are you going to go away sad? All over this country, all over this world, the church is being called out in this moment in these moments, in the moments to come. And they're going to make it clear about our devotion. We have to be ready. We have to say, you know what? Take away my house. Take away my tax deductions. Take away it all. But you can't take away my devotion to Jesus. You're not going to take it away. Because I'm devoted to the only thing that offers me help, that offers me hope. That's what I build my life on. Are we ready as a church to go where this world seems to be headed to answer the call for Jesus? And secondly, are you a hindrance or are you a help for having other people find Jesus? Are you the person in the crowd going, shut up, quiet down. Standing in the way of people coming to Jesus? Or are you like, hey dude, leave them alone. I'm gonna help them up. I'm gonna help them get over to Jesus. If he can't hear this man, I'm going to shout for him. I'm going to be an encouragement. I'm going to be an aid, a help, a guide to to help people find the source of life. The contrast is clear between these two men. Beggars were poor, yet they became rich. The young man was rich, yet he became eternally poor. Beggars claimed no special merit, openly admitted their need, but the young man lied about himself, bragged about his character. The young man would not believe, so he went away from Jesus very sad. But the two beggars believed in Jesus and followed him with songs of praise. Listen to the way the passage ends as I invite the worship team forward. We're going to respond today the same way they responded in that day. Listen to this. All the people, verse 43, as this chapter comes to a close. All the people, when they saw it, what did they witness? They witnessed a life that was changed. They witnessed a life that had surrendered to Jesus. They witnessed a miracle of a man who was blind who could now see again. All the people, when they saw it, what did they do? They gave praise to God. Church, are we praising God for the amazing transformation that he does in people's lives, in your own life, in the lives of those you love. Maybe there's someone here today that is going to give their life to Jesus, who has given their life to Jesus, even as I spoke, has prayed this prayer in their heart. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I fall short of your perfect, holy, glorious standard, and I need your help. I'm a blind beggar. God, I need your rescue. I recognize that what you did with Jesus and sending him into our world to pay the price that my sin deserved, that his death, that his resurrection proves that he is God and has given me hope. And I place my faith in him and him alone. There's nothing I bring to the table. All of my works are filthy rags. I need Jesus. I place my faith and my trust in Jesus. Come into my heart. Save me today. If that's your prayer, I want to invite you to come forward and kneel at this, this little altar here this morning and just, just be a, a, an example of someone who has prayed that prayer. And as if we see anyone come forward, and even if you come forward and you're coming forward for some other reason, let us praise God for the work that he's done in people's lives this morning. Amen. Let us praise him. In Jesus' name. Amen.